on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, this is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Weston Williams. And, oh, uh, okay, I guess that's it. All right, this week... Fresh from conducting Opera Next Gen's night trip, Donald Lee III goes inside the huddle with Oliver to talk about the show's virtual world premiere and about being the inaugural conductor for the Ryan Opera Center. And I think Oliver gets him to talk about being one half of Opera's next power couple. Plus two in a drill. It's a drill double header. Everything you need to know from Opera Land in the past two weeks plus our hot takes on those stories. Look, if you're watching on TDO, Dallas Opera Network, subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts. You're going to get the whole thing. You can email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You drop us a line. You get an OBS beer coaster and wow. you get an OBS lapel pen just for sharing Whoa, your for thoughts. free, George? For free. Amazing. That's that's like a perfect Christmas gift. You Weston know, Williams. I mean, you give it to someone who's never heard of our show before, doesn't listen to opera, doesn't like sports, to say, Merry Christmas. I thought of you. And then all of a sudden, you've got a sports fan, you got an opera fan, you got a podcast fan, you've got a George's Beard fan. There's literally no downside to doing it's that. It's the dream, man. It's the dream. Look, don't <laughs> don't call it a skeleton crew tonight. I, I, I'm kind of liking this vibe, actually. It's kind of nice. I mean, I, I will <laughs> say I'm a little jealous that they all decided to take their Christmas vacations a little early. But, like, huh? it's okay. Some of us have to work for a living, you know? I get it. I get it. <laughs> Bears and Packers working on Monday night – excuse me, Sunday night football. Uh, America's game. It's the only game – uh, on Sunday nights. All the other football games, of course, happened during the day. Bears off to an early lead and then failed and collapsed in the second half against the hated pack. Uh, a bad day, indeed. Well, you know what's probably going to be a good day is uh, the, it, there, there is a potential, George, here for uh, my Tide and your Wolverines to come crashing together and the Wolverines to be just absolutely annihilated. That's my personal bet that's what's going to happen because when once that tide is rolling george you know when that tide is rolling you can't stop it it's just going to roll just, right over you just like psh, that's the tide going over you psh, that's what that's what we're talking about we say roll tide you you, you make my blood boil in a way that, <laughs> that no one else does it's true the tide and the wolverines would have to win their respective playoff games and then they would meet in the national championship if that happens the OBS is going to go bonkers, and I will leave it <laughs> at that. Let us talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. On December 11th, Donald Lee III conducted the world premiere of the one-act Night Trip by composer Carlos Simon and librettist Sandra Seaton. But he didn't conduct in front of musicians in person. He conducted in front of his webcam, this was for Opera Next Gen, the company founded in 2020 to discover the next generation of opera talent with equality, equity, and inclusivity at the forefront. In order to ensure that opera will continue to thrive for generations, Opera Next Gen has widened the scope of live virtual performance. 
We'll hear about the production of Night Trip, but first, here's a little bit of Donald Lee playing Florence Price's Piano Sonata. did Night Trip by Carlos Simon, the composer, and Sandra Seaton, the librettist. Um, it was an incredible challenge, but we, we produced a really great product. So it was a virtual opera in which everybody was, uh, everybody was in a different place, a, almost a different state for everybody. And we were just on this, this audio server called Jamulus and we're using Skype and the tech team is mixing everything together and I'm conducting behind a microphone, keeping everything together and um, somehow timing these track entrances correctly. And um, they had scene changes and it was, I've, I had never seen anything like it. When I saw the dress rehearsal video and finally saw what it was that we were doing, it was really impressive. So you're saying that you were conducting from your own computer and there wasn't, there weren't live musicians in front of you? Right. <laughs> oh, so how did you guys deal with the delay? Uh, Jamulus. So, okay. so I recorded the performance track uh, myself and uh, that way I could know exactly what all of the rubato was going to be, know how long the fermatas were going to be, all of that good stuff. Um, and that is what we all synced to. And okay. then. I was able to basically translate what a gesture would be into the sound of my voice and really quite effectively cue entrances and, you know, just manage everything musically from behind my computer in Chicago while everybody was, you know, who knows where. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, it already happened. And you just told me that there's not, uh, there, there isn't a plan for a repeat of this performance. No, no, but there are going to be more performances this, this season of other things. And, you know, it's a good organization. Just follow and see what's on the horizon. Are you engaged for future performances with Opera Next Gen? Not yet. Although I did tell them, like, now I know how everything works. I would be yeah. stoked to do another one. Hmm. But uh, you also would be stoked to just conduct an orchestra, like, in front of people, right? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that brings us to your role at the Ryan Opera Center here at in Chicago at Lyric Opera Chicago. Can you talk about, um, you know, applying for that position or being headhunted for that position, and so far what it's been like for you? Uh, sure. So, um, I did apply for the position. I will say, um, I had met Craig Terry before, and this was in tennis. accompanist to the stars. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> he's always doing something that is just so incredibly cool. He's like in Russia playing Venturiza with Joyce Didonato or something. And then like two weeks later, just like, oh, Argentina and it's sunny and yeah. you all are cold. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I met him because he was judging a Met competition that Kimon was singing in. And I remember just having a really short conversation with him, asking him about, you know, solo piano versus collaborative piano and 
kind of feeling if you feeling if one has to choose and whatnot and next thing i know he's talking to me about this position that lyric is creating and um yeah i was just really happy that a lot of people in his corner also were in my corner and that the application process went through i'm so glad that i had friends who were able to form a ensemble in the middle of a pandemic for me to conduct them so i could give them a conducting sample um and you know everything ended up working out and i'm so grateful to be there now well maybe rewind a little bit because I feel like looking at your, you know, CV that you were on this path to being um, like a concert pianist whose emphasis was um, maybe decentering dead white men from the repertoire, mm -hmm. uh, at least from your repertoire. Um, where does opera fit into that? Okay, so and that's a question I feel like so many people have. So I have been working with singers since I was a child. Hmm. Okay. So ever since I was even in elementary school, I had been playing for my friends as they sang. Like in first talent show that I ever did was at my elementary school. I played for a trio of my friends. Um, I played one of the songs that we did in chapel. I ended up actually singing and that I was also a boy soprano and sang in a mall in the night visitors when I was wow. nine years old. Um, and then I fell in love with Cecilia Bartoli just as a YouTube sensation uh, when I was in high school. Then I get to undergrad and that's when I, you know, need a little extra rent money. And that's when I started accompanying some friends for their voice lessons. And that quickly turned into me being in demand and playing for at least 12 singers per semester until I graduate. Hmm. Then, um, if you're looking at my CV, then you know I went to CCM, Cincinnati Conservatory, for my master's, and that is one of the best schools for voice in the country. Um, and so I got to work with fantastic singers there. Allison Anderson, Amber Monroe, a rising star soprano, Skylar Vargas, rising star baritone, like those are some of my great friends. I met Victoria Okafor, um, who got to work with them. And then I was a professor at Kentucky State University for three years. I was also the staff pianist there and coached all of those students. So voice has been right in tandem with what I've been doing my whole life. So it's okay. not just this random thing that popped up. Okay. <laughs> well, so what has been your, uh, what have been your assignments and what might be future assignments? I know you can't talk about all of them uh, <laughs> while you're here in Chicago. Um, so lots and lots and lots of coaching my colleagues which has been a blast just to, you know, get to get in there and work with languages and, you know, work with spectacular talents, like, oh my goodness. Um, playing on the WFMT recital series. Um, I've, I've heard of it. <laughs> you know, um, I've really enjoyed that because I, art song is, you know, has a very special place in my heart. As a pianist, um, I'm just going to be completely honest. I enjoy playing, you know, art songs more so than arias, but also nothing beats sitting in an operatic performance with, you know, full orchestra and setting and everything. Mm -hmm. um, I've, as you just mentioned, I conducted the Lyric Opera Orchestra in Millennium Park. I will be conducting them again in February for a Rising Stars concert. I can't say much more than that. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, I can tell you that I will have season assignments in the next year. So you'll see my name uh, in more places in the program booklet. Okay, so they've already renewed your 
contract for 2022-23. So I'll be back. <laughs> awesome. That's great. Uh, maybe we can actually meet in person and like sit down and not do this over Zoom one day. <laughs> um, so talking about these WFMT recitals, um, I took a look at the program that you have planned for the beginning of January so people can tune in actually. Uh, you are paired with the baritone Leroy Davis, yeah. and um, you are doing an aria from As One. Uh, whose idea was that? That was Leroy's. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, well, good. I'm so, I mean, I was just happy to see that because we talk about that opera all the time on this show. And um, that I feel like for lyric opera audiences, um, that is... That's a little bit of a stretch for them, but I'm glad that they're going to hear it because you're also going to like, whatever, have some Brahms and Poulenc on the programs. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm laughing just because that aria was so difficult to put yeah. together. Oh my goodness. It was a, it was a real project, but it was so much fun to do. Um, you know, Leroy, he, Leroy primarily curated that, that program. And, um, I think that it was just a really powerful poignant program, you know, to have the Thea and Sigazang of, of Brahms, and then to have, you know, the English set that we did. It's just, there's just so much realness and so much just inward looking and not necessarily at all of the good parts of humanity, but just looking at ourselves for what we are, who we are, how we treat other people and, you know, the lives that we lead. It was, um, it was an experience working on it because, you know, as artists, we really put ourselves into it. So I learned a lot about myself in that process as well. Nice. Um, well, I mean, I sort of wanted to talk a little bit about some work that you did before you came to Chicago, mm -hmm. uh, mainly in what I started saying before in sort of decentering the repertoire. Mm -hmm. um, I know that at Lyric Opera, you're they're unlikely to give you assignments that really um, allow you to do that, that type of thing. Um, but let's just maybe talk about the future. Um, and when you're done with Lyric and when you've, you know, conducted all your magic flutes and all of your traviatas, um, do you see the possibility for change in our business? And it's really, it's going to be people like you who are going to sort of have to bring the skill and the experience and the desire to have new repertoire. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, I, I do see the potential for change because I do see some things changing. Now I will say that I am kind of entering this vantage point kind of recently, but I mean, you just had fire at, at the Met and that's mm -hmm. going to be, you know, traveling around eventually, you know, being in Chicago in just a few months. Um, you have snowy day at Houston Grand right now. Mm -hmm. um, I look at all of these exciting shows being workshopped right now. I don't know exactly what I can say about them, so I'm not going to say what they are or anything. Mm -hmm. um, but they're just really exciting, diverse stories that are being looked at seriously by companies right now um and i am excited about entering this you know chapter of my career at this time because i feel like i'm kind of positioned to maybe you know conduct some of these works when they you know as they get steam and get produced on the main stage Hopefully. so it's it's almost like you are uh, in the incubator so that when 
these things start to hit, you know, the mainstream opera, there will already be somebody like you uh, in the ranks. Cause I mean, let's be honest, like there are not that many black conductors, you know, um, that conduct major orchestras or opera orchestras, you know? Right. There, there, I mean, not too many, but at the same time, there are, you know, I, I would actually say there are a good amount of black conductors who are out there. I will say I see most of them doing symphonic repertoire. Mm-hmm. So as far as somebody with um, a more operatic skill set, um, I do recognize that I'm, I'm not going to say uniquely positioned because I discover new people every day, but yeah. I agree that there aren't too many. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you sort of are developing these skills right now, can you say um, what might distinguish a good symphonic conductor from an opera conductor? Um, I mean, there's just a sixth sense that you have to have when you're working with singers. I don't know what it is. I've worked with I've worked with just about every instrument, mm-hmm. and you have to you, you have to be able to sync with somebody. But there's just something about there's just something about the voice. I can tell in just a, in the way a singer breathes what is about to happen and what might need to happen like if the breath was not good enough i know okay this phrase is going to have to move and that's just something that you know for me i developed naturally in my childhood thankfully and also a lot of that came from the black church and you know having to improvise accompaniments with soloists on the fly um and if you couldn't you would get called out for it um but you know not everybody has that and I, I do believe that everything can be developed but you know if people are in love with symphonic repertoire then maybe they're not gonna take the time to develop that six times per se so yeah i mean in a way um the great opera conductors have been good i mean i'm not gonna say like carrion or something like that but the great opera conductors especially for repertoire like bel canto have been good at putting the spotlight on the voices mm-hmm. and maybe you know great symphonic conductors don't want to give that spotlight up i mean maybe i i'm just you know in i take you know lots and lots and lots of conducting lessons as part of of, as part of my training and in every lesson i think about what type of conductor i do want to ultimately be or what type of conductor i am and i just think thinking about most things from like a chamber music perspective of everything Mm -hmm. is everything is a collaboration um, everything is a resultant of, you know, great minds being in the room. Instead of thinking of it as, you know, subjecting everybody to this, you know, great genius's will, maybe you think of it as a collaboration of a bunch of minds. All of a sudden, it's like a computer where you're linking multiple processors together to get, you know, something that's super. Um, I don't know. That's just the way my brain works. Hmm. Well, you said a minute ago, uh, talking about syncing with singers. Mm-hmm. Um a singer that our audience knows uh, is Kiman Mara. Um, mm-hmm. I understand you know him pretty well too. Yes, <laughs> over two years. Um, I think that you guys are going to be like the next like opera power couple, <laughs> and that's going to be so cool. <laughs> no, that would be really, really super nice. No, I love him a lot, and um, I'm glad that we are that our careers are kind of aligning in a way that will you know, allow us to just do musical fun things together, hopefully soon. How is your Rossini and Handel? Uh, 
you know i actually you know that's one thing with playing for him i do not enjoy playing handel that much i don't think many pianists well they're violin parts you know they're not really meant to be played on the piano you know you know yeah um but you know i do that for him and then he also ends up singing german leader for me so it's all good (laughs) (laughs) well donald lee the third uh thank you so much for being on opera box score Thanks again to Donald Lee for hanging out with Oliver inside the huddle. And if you want to learn more about that, super easy, operanextgen.org, operanextgen.org. Well, that's the that's the future of, of opera. Let's talk about the current uh, sports, George. I would say Roll Tide, but I know you have an update for us from Toby. Well, this is a, this is a pro thing. No update from Toby. I think it's because we are winning our round this week and so Whoa. there's no excuses that need to be made <laughs> so here we go hashtag opera on the ball you can follow it on twitter again this is opera philadelphia's internal funning games fantasy football league of which tobias and i are thrilled to be a part thank you frank you know who you are uh <laughs> obs team right now we're about to go we're gonna win tonight and we're gonna be six and eight Ooh. which in our division puts us actually in fourth place in the other division mm. That we that we played with that would be last. Um, I'm just thrilled that Opera Philadelphia's general director David Devan is in last position. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm talking to you. Well, that, that that's you know very high stakes because you know whoever wins this becomes the next general director of Opera Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how they do it. <laughs> Two minute drill, double header, right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week and last week. After a number of vocal issues over the years, tenor Rolando Villazon has returned to the Met for the first time in eight years. Wow. And that's in the role of Papageno from the Magic Flute. Quote, I'm not a baritone. <laughs> that's from Villazon. There are some low notes that aren't really for a tenor like a B-flat, but they're mostly in the harmony. Basically, they don't matter. Villazon made his Met debut in 1999. The Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats was one of the first children's books to feature a black protagonist. It's just made its debut in opera form at Houston Grand Opera. Andrea Davis Pinckney, another children's book author, wrote the libretto, quote, he's a black boy in a red hoodie going out into the snow alone, said composer Joel Thompson. That's Tamir Rice. That's Trayvon Martin, end quote. The Canadian Opera Company is teaming up with the nonprofit White Ribbon for Uncomposed, a global initiative to fight toxic masculinity. The multifaceted campaign features an original composition, a documentary, and a survey about perceptions of masculinity. Humberto Carollo, executive director of White Ribbon, said, quote, For too long, society has taught men to be strong by repressing their emotions. Uncomposed will start a conversation and encourage men and boys to acknowledge and express a range of complex emotions. The German Stage Association has called for authorities in charge of COVID safety mandates to provide a consistent approach to COVID protocols for cultural institutions. The association expressed concern over wide sweeping lockdowns that would unnecessarily shut down theaters that already had proper safety considerations in place. 
Several cultural institutions in Belgium issued a joint statement following the decision of the government to limit theater seating capacity to 200 spectators, saying, quote, applying the same upper limit to everyone does not make sense. In some houses, 200 people is half the total capacity, in others, only a sixth very specific. We advocate an individual approach to the problem that takes into account the real situation, which is different for each cultural house. The Zemperoper Dresden has announced that the Zexischen Staatstheater, try saying that after a liter of beer, will organize vaccinations <laughs> against COVID-19 as part of a campaign called Vaccination Protects Culture. Quote, the Staatstheater is helping to support vaccinations, said Intendant Peter Tyler. Only when as many people as possible show solidarity by being vaccinated will we be able to return to regular performances. Hot on the heels of the Sandy Awards handed out on last week's episode of the OBS, the rest of Operaland is now following suit. Opera America has announced Opera America Salutes, a celebration of opera's outstanding leaders. The 2022 inductees are Rary Grist, Charles McKay, Marlena Mollis, and Virginia Ziani, who joined the 2021 Hall of Fame class that includes Grace Bumbry, Matthew Epstein, David Gockley, George Shirley, and Don Upshaw. But there's even more awards to give oh, out no. in opera land. Yes, the Schleswig-Holstein Music Festival has awarded English composer Hannah Kendall the Hindemith Prize. Austrian composer and multimedia artist Olga Neuwirth snags the University of Louisville Ravemeyer Award for Music Competition. American tenor Michael Spires has been honored with the Chevalier des Arts et des Lettres designation by the French government. And at the 51st Puccini Awards held at the Auditorium Enrico Caruso and Torre del Lago, get your <laughs> yacht ready, soprano Firenze Cerolins and Intendant Carlo Fortes will be honored. The Wiener Staatsoper has announced the cancellation of its traditional opera ball following a decision by the State Secretary for Art and Culture, Andrea Meyer. The opera company's general director, Bogdan Rosic, noted that the current wave of COVID-19 and the specter of the Omicron variant has made it impossible for vendors to meet deadlines for the soiree. You just wanted to say specter. I just wanted to say soiree. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> So Opera San Jose has announced the appointment of stage director Shauna Lucy as the company's general director. San Francisco Opera has appointed John Keane as chorus director. Legendary tenor George Shirley has been voted the new chairman of the Board of ArtSmart, a nonprofit that transforms lives through music mentorship. And the Rossini Opera Festival has appointed Juan Diego Flores as its new artistic director by recommendation of the intendant Ernesto Palacio. Quote, I am very happy and honored with the new artistic adventure that this commission represents for me, above all because it is conferred on me by the festival where I was artistically born when I was only 23 years old. That's from Juan Diego Flores. All those headlines in trade news. Here we go. On the disabled list, Yannick Nezesagan, the Mets music director, will not conduct, as planned, a revival of the Nozze di Figaro in January. Nezesagan will be taking, quote, a brief, almost four-week sabbatical from all conducting duties commencing December 19th, according to the Met. Across the pond, conductor and head of the London Symphony Orchestra, Sir Simon Rabelais tested positive for COVID-19, causing him to miss all upcoming engagements until further notice. We wish him a speedy recovery. During a performance of Tosca at Covent Garden last week, tenor Brian Heimel singing Cavaradossi developed vocal issues and needed to be replaced. 
British tenor Freddie Di Tommaso was in the opera house and quickly took over in the second act. Di Tommaso broke two significant records. He became the first British tenor to sing the role at Covent Garden in almost 60 years and the youngest tenor to ever take on the part at the ROH. Exit stage right Cincinnati-based tenor Marco Panuccio, who passed away at 48 after a short illness. Widely admired by his colleagues, Panuccio was an Emmy-nominated singer who had performed more than 25 major roles. Mezzo-soprano Pamela, Pamela Helen Stephen has died at the age of 57. Her most recognized roles included Dido in Dido and Aeneas, Giulio Cesare, and Octavian from Der Rosenkavalier. Russian baritone Nikolai Golyushev died late last month at 91. Throughout his career, he sang 3,500 performances, but his most recognized role was Eugene Onegin, which he sang 276 times. Wow. And on this day, December 13th, in 1729, it was the first performance of George Frederick Handel's opera Lotario. In 1794, Carabini's Elisa ou le voyage au glacier du Mont Saint-Bernard premiered in 1794 in Paris. And Oliver isn't here to correct me. 1868 was the birth of Italian baritone Mario Sammarco, who was born in Palermo. He created a number of verismo roles, including Gerard and Andrea Chenier. There were two first uh, performances by Leon Cavallo on this day, De Roland from von Berlin in 1904, and Oedipus Rex in 1920. In 1917, Richard Strauss conducted the 100th performance of his opera Der Rosenkavalier in Dresden. In 1944, it was the first performance of Leonard Bernstein's musical On the Town. And a very happy birthday to Yugoslavian mezzo-soprano Mariana Lipovsek, who was born on this day in 1946. And that is your doubleheader eight-minute drill. <laughs> Again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Even easier, just favorite the OBS on Apple Podcasts. Listening there to Mariana Lepovsek and Carlo Cosuta live at the Bregenz Festival, Ooh. 1986. Sessons, Samson and Delilah, Mon Coeur S'ouvre à ta voix. Oh, you're just trying to show off that you can pronounce French better than me. I know, no. Oliver's not here to, like, give me snaps. <laughs> you know? I, 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 this is crazy to me. First of all, Strauss, 100 performances of Rosenkavalier. 
Yeah, yeah. In his lifetime, which is awesome. Uh, Chicago Opera Repinit in 1920 with a premiere by Leon Cavallo. I know, right? Uh, what were they doing in 1920? I feel like you you never hear about uh, big premieres of by Leon Cavallo in that in that time period. Although I guess at that point he was kind of uh, lowering in popularity somewhat, so they just kind of snapped up whoever they could get. Right. Um, and then, of course, uh, On the Town by Bernstein, oh. a classic. We love that one. Absolutely Kind classic. of a good day for uh, operas that are not that hard to pronounce for me. Uh. <laughs> some, really, some really good days. And some interesting days for Rolando Villazon. So this is kind of, yeah. you know, this is the, the big news, certainly, and the big, the big lead story. So if we start by looking at the stats for Villazon. So Met debut in 1999. He's, he's mm. tipped to become the next Domingo, right? Yeah, yeah. In a good way, we should say. <laughs> Thank you. Before everything came out. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Uh, and the, his career really starts to peak in like 2005, 2006, 2007. Right, right. He partners up with Anna Netrebko. They are sharing the stage a lot as as tenor and soprano. And His then, eyebrows are just going places. Those eyebrows, man. He's sort of like a Muppet. And then, <laughs> those, th- then the problems start. And you know, in the in the two thousand eight two thousand nine season, I was the personal assistant to a director at the Met. I was not an assistant Drink. director at the Met, but I, I was a kind of a personal <laughs> assistant. And it was on a revival of Lucia di La Mermore, where so Netrebko was Lucia, and um, Viazan was Edgardo, and. I remember sitting in the house, one performance, maybe two or three performances into the run. And he was singing, I think he was singing Sulla Tomba. And you you heard this pop. It was like someone oh, blowing a, blowing bubblegum. And it was like, the, imagine blowing the biggest bubblegum bubble you could and having that pop. And that was the those two little folds of skin called the vocal cords of the vocal cords just snapping oh god and you know we talk about sports on the show all the time you talk about uh, season ending injuries career ending injuries that's what that was and when that sound that bubblegum pop sound went off everybody at the met gasped i bet they did because everybody knew what that meant so the problems began then then of course Viazon moved over to directing. Now that's a dreadful idea. As a director, I can say to you right now, (laughs) you never recommend it to anybody. So he moves into the directing wilderness, and here we are, twenty twenty one, singing Papageno, one of the best known baritone roles in the rep. I know it's wild. Well, he does bring this up uh, in the New York Times article we quoted from earlier that the original Papageno was not really sung by a what we would consider a professional opera singer now because it was, of course, written, um, you know... As a zingspiel, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A zingspiel for the common folk. Uh, there were some some more professional voices and some less so. I think and, the librettist Chickenator, didn't he sing I, Yeah, he sang yeah. it. Yeah, and he, and he wasn't he wasn't like... Uh, the, I mean, he was trained, of course, in, to some extent, but, you know, he, he wouldn't have had a typical baritone voice that we would now think of. And speaking as someone who has sung just a little bit of Papageno myself, not on stage or anything, but in, in very amateur, you know. Drink. You know. I never get to drink on this show. <laughs> uh, it, it, it is something that a less trained voice can do. Of course, training is not Viazon's issue. 
Um, he's got plenty of that, but it's, uh, I, I do worry every, I feel like there've been a few times where he's kind of like made a, a comeback. I actually heard him, uh, once, um, after, after his big vocal breakdown, uh, I believe I was in Vienna, maybe Switzerland. I can't remember. Um, and, uh, he sounded okay. I mean, he was, he was quiet, but, uh, he sounded okay. And then he had another sort of like fallout not soon after that too. So really at this point, I just want him to be okay. You know what I mean? Uh, I imagine that these performances at the Met, um, I believe the first one's already happened at Mm -hmm. least. Um, um, but I think everyone's going to be sort of watching and not just watching to see like, you know, if there's going to be a real comeback here, but also just to make sure that he's okay, because this, this is one of those things that's, you know, a, a lot of these vocal injuries can really like completely wipe out a career. Like, you know, going back, if you, if you're a big opera history nerd, like I am reading these stories and seeing these pictures of famous opera singers who were huge right up until the moment that they went a little bit too far. They tried Wagner too early, usually, you mm-hmm. know, and then they disappear off the map and no one hears from them ever again. And Viazon has really made an effort over the past 10 years or so to really stay in the game in some way. Absolutely. But we'll see if, it, mean, if he stays in this way. You look, know? there's no way in professional sports that you could get injured and 12 years later, come back and, and throw a forward pass in an NFL game. Right, right. In, in the locker room, it... it uh, the University of Michigan Wolverines locker room, former head coach Bo Schembechler, the legend, his famous quote, which is on the locker room wall, is those who stay will be champions. And I think we're really seeing that from Viazone is that he has been able to shapeshift. He has been able to take the abuse of the press, of the fans. He has been able yeah. to do these sideways moves into different careers, recording, directing, uh, and he's been able to, I think, try and try and get back into this business. And let's see how this and, plays and- out. It really shows the value of like, you know, taking a break, you know, if your voice can't take it, you know, um, you know, rest it, you know, it's not it's not worth your voice to keep pushing through. And speaking of taking breaks, Yannick, there's uh, Ace again taking a break. <laughs> YNS. Presumably I, he's prepping for the OBS uh, interview. Oh, I would hope so. Oh, God. Can we get him? He, that'd be great. I am interested, though, because they were very vague. They didn't really give a reason for him uh, going on sabbatical out of nowhere. Um, I mean, first of all, a sabbatical comes after seven years, which he certainly hasn't done (laughs) at the Met. (laughs) I don't know what this is. I I feel like I've I've heard no rumors as to what the reason might be. Um, If it's a mental break, you know, I mean, I think it's great. Normalize those in classical music, especially because... This this guy is not only, you know, head at the Met, he's also, uh, it's a Philadelphia orchestra, mm-hmm. I believe. Yep. Um, and he, he's all over the place. He, he's like, he just, he's dropping albums left and right. You know, it's like, take a break. You know, I, I don't know what the reason is specifically for him taking a break, but I, I support him taking a break. He needs a rest too. <laughs> I mean, look, it's punishing to be on a professional sports team when you're traveling away games then you're back in town playing home games. Like it has that sort of similar punishment, but it's much more condensed, you know, into three or four months of a season. And then you've got this off season that does not exist in the world of performing arts and especially opera. There is no off season because, well, basically you can't afford it. Even, even YNS cannot afford to take a break. Keep an eye on that story as well. Problems in Europe. First of all, the German stage association, like, 
that just sends shivers of fear down my spine. Doesn't it sound terrifying? Yeah. I just imagine like how strongly worded that letter is. So like Deutsche Bühne Verein. I mean, I just want to sort of pee my pants when I when I hear that. They mean business though. I mean, th- so so they're upset, right? Because opera houses are being closed that have these provisions in place for COVID. But right. I, I think the more interesting story really is actually in Belgium. Weston, can you talk us through those stats? Yeah, I think Belgium is an interesting case, uh, too, because I, I feel like we, we've seen this sort of reaction from Germany before in terms of, you know, objections being raised because there's there's Germany tends to be like more at the forefront of like making sure like everything is, you know, all the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed and crossed in terms of like restrictions and things like that. Uh, Belgium, I think, makes some interesting points about seating capacity specifically um, because uh, Belgium basically just said, OK, we have to have a high a high bar of people, no more than 200, no matter where the theater is, no matter the size. And I think that's I think they make a very good point that 200 people doesn't make a lot of sense for some theaters because for some theaters, like honestly, you know, 200 people, if you have like a a thousand seat house, that's a nice spaced out audience. But if you are a very, very small house, you know, 200 people's half the people in it and you're, you're not getting any spacing anyway, you're getting no advantage from that. Uh, I, I do want, to, I do uh, think that sometimes when I see letters like this, uh, it can come off as kind of, complaining like oh we don't want to follow all these extra rules you know um but i do think that uh the idea of advocating for specific solutions based on the exact situations the material conditions of every specific house every organization every institution that needs different things need to be considered absolutely i mean look okay so these metrics make absolutely no sense right like you this is the wrong metric to use it it has to be a ratio it has to be a percentage it can't be like a a flat fee especially since you know uh, as like you know the omicron variant is popping up again um there are still doubts about how effective vaccines are against it but it's looking like as mutations continue forward, it looks like there, there are greater and greater possibilities of like, you know, the virus hanging around, even with vaccines, even with, you know, uh, distancing and masking and things like that. And it's very, very important for governments and institutions to start thinking of how to implement specific solutions for long-term living with the virus, essentially. Exactly. And if you're if you're a European Union bureaucrat, like you don't want to do the hard work, <laughs> right? The easy solution is just to say, well, it will be this number and that just applies to anything, right? The difficult approach is doing bespoke solutions with every opera right. house to match up. That's the difficult part of the bureaucracy, which they clearly don't see the value in doing, even though people's financial and creative lives are at stake. Yeah, and and, and not to mention, you know, the culture. I mean, the, the, the scary German organization is right. Like, culture is important, you know. It's, I, I do think we've gotten to a point, maybe not right now with the current COVID wave in Europe, but we've gotten to a point where, you know, we can have things open because we know enough about the virus to know what, how best to mitigate it, how to enforce vaccine protocols. And we also know that we can and should shut down if something breaks through that changes that status quo. 
but it is we're we're I think we're beyond the point now where we were at the beginning of the pandemic where we're like the arts are essential, yes, but not that essential. Yeah, Do you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> well, and this so this is why the the Zemper Opera in in Dresden is advocate is got this campaign going right. Vaccination protects culture. I'm sure it's a lot snappier yeah. in German than in that. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure I mean, I, I love this because. Especially this week, you know, we're having lots of uh, complaints going forward from various institutions. And we see this in the U.S. too, where, you know, some uh, some people in the arts and culture world will will send out a complaint or make an or make a tweet about, you know, restrictions, sometimes in good faith, sometimes not in good faith. You know, I just love to see uh, an opera house participating in the solution, you know helping with vaccine drives, not just like, you know, saying something should be done, but doing something, you know, and I think this is a responsibility that sometimes gets lost on arts organizations because, you know, the arts are part of life. They're they're part of the world. They are capable of giving back to the community in ways that are not just come to our performance, you know, and I think it's really great to see um, uh, to see organizations like uh, like in Dresden sort of stepping up and uh actually helping do something instead of just sending scary German letters <laughs> about, about, about seat capacity. I, I was thrilled to see snowy day, um, mm. becoming an opera. I was really excited about this story. Actually, first of all, I just love snowy day. I mean, it is one of the most beloved children's books ever. I mean, it is up there mm. with, with, um, the very hungry caterpillar, good night oh, moon, classic. The art is so beautifully done. The story is so simple. Um, uh, you know, I'm going to put my ignorance out there. I, I I cannot better myself without putting my ignorance out there. I assume that Ezra Jack Keats was black because the protagonist oh. of, of the story is black. And I, I could not have been more wrong. Turns mm. out Ezra Jack Keats, old Jewish guy from Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really? I, I didn't know that either. Um, that's interesting. But I think that's, you know... One of the great things about, you know, not just the the book as a whole, but like the the potential of an opera there, too, uh, because there is something really nice about a story that doesn't center like the, uh, the, the struggles, you know, of of being a minority in this country uh, and just like seeing them exist in a happy, hopeful way, really like viewing the snowy day. Um, I think there's something really poignant about the um, the parallels to like Trayvon Martin and stuff that we quoted earlier, um, because that that should have been what their lives were just going out, enjoying their day, being kids, you know, uh, and only to have it cut short. And um, I don't know if that if how explicitly that parallel is brought out in the opera, if at all. But I do think that uh, the story, at least, just having a children's story where they're just being there in their in, in, you know, a black body, just existing in this sort of peaceful little children's story on a this snowy day, it really has like a, just as hard hitting a message as something like, you know, fire shut up in my bones, which is much more explicitly sure. about the struggle, sure. you know, for sure. But I mean, snowy day in the story, and I assume in the opera as well has a wonderful commonality to it, which is at one point the child, Peter, I think his name is, he um, 
his like his snowsuit gets wet and so do his socks mm-hmm. and it's like yeah all of our socks have all gotten wet you know in the snow he just puts them on yeah. the radiator it's well not mine because i'm from the deep south and yeah, we don't get snow true. but like in theory yes true. <laughs> you know it i mean in this opera of course it follows a great legacy of um uh children's operas some children's operas that have been taken from books of course maurice sendak's where the wild things are is one of the first uh, children's book adaptations I can think of, Alice in Wonderland. Um, and of course, I think this also fits into the sort of the Christmas opera bracket as well. Oh, like, yeah. That is, tis the season. Well, it is tis the season, right? And like, I don't know, do we really need another Amal and the Night Visitors? I, well, sure. yes, because frankly, I'm not a huge fan of Amal and the Night Visitors. But <laughs> but I do think it's a, it's very interesting whenever someone decides to write an opera based on like a children's book or specifically for children um because you know you have like a, a very different sort of like set of expectations from a child um uh ba- compared to adults like adults you can like draw on the vocabulary of opera right so if you're if if you do something that's you know a specific reference to an earlier opera or has like a much longer time span that an adult is more comfortable with sitting through 5 hours of something you know in one way, those are the conventions of operas that we know. Children's operas are more complicated because you have to deal with different attention spans. You have to like really be intimately like familiar with what kids are interested in. And this is something that, you know, I, I used to work as a teaching artist. Uh, and this is something that I would encounter all the time. Like when I was a teaching artist, if you were if you were teaching children in middle school and you did not know about Fortnite, you might as well quit right there and then, you know what I mean? And I think Fortnite, the opera would be kind of amazing. I would watch it. Um, But you have to like follow these trends, how kids are thinking, but also at the same time, you have to strike that balance of preserving what opera is about, you know, and what, what the feel of an opera is, because ideally you take an opera like that, that, you know, will in the, in for a lot of kids, that'll be their first opera. They'll, it'll exist in isolation in their minds, but they have to still be able to draw um, conclusions from that and recognize it when hopefully they grow up and see another one. Yeah. So there's a lot of responsibilities for a children's opera that just don't exist. I think with a a typical opera made for adults. The stakes, the stakes are high on this one. It looks like at the uh, production, photos that they've been able to capture as well those illustrations from the original yeah Ezra jack keats uh link to that article from the new york times that's on our website operaboxscore.com also in the good news corner a little more positivity the coc initiative joining yeah. with uh the white ribbon foundation which is a canadian organization which battles toxic masculinity the more i thought about this the more i realized how many male role models and father role models in opera are absolutely treacherous. I know. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, well, if there's any like art form that needs some overhauling in the toxic masculinity department, it's probably opera. You know, all the classic ones, like, like, you know, the classic father figures and all the Verity operas Mm -hmm. are kind of terrible, over possessive. Um, Wagner, you've got Votan <laughs> leaves his daughter on a rock surrounded by fire, and that's like a good thing in his mind. All the way through uh, through the operas of Britain as well. I mean, Billy yeah. Budd, Peter Grimes, uh, 
it, it, I think it's it can be really overwhelming. And I'm excited for this initiative to see how they're going to use music to combat that. Well, that's, I think, what the, what's so cool about this is because I think there's immense potential in opera to, like, really teach men about, you know, emotions, essentially. Because, I, I mean, I remember growing up, like, you know, I was called, you know, girly or whatever uh, for liking music just in general. You know what I mean? Uh, and and there's something about like the huge expression of of emotion in opera where you just have that moment where you start crying at the at, you know at the at the peak of Tristan and Isolde you know where uh, just something that you can't really find anywhere else that that allows you to not just uh, feel those emotions in a safe way but start to like look around you and see other tiers of men in the audience with you and. Um, I think obviously there's a very interesting story to be told specifically about that, but also the experience of going to hear music to see a theatrical production that affects you in general is something that's incredibly valuable and I think has really helped me avoid the pitfalls growing up, you know, living in the South of, you know, becoming a little bit of a overly manly distance from emotion sort of stereotype. Uh, and I think this is a great opportunity and I would love to see more positive representation of masculinity exactly. in opera. You, you see toxic masculinity in uh, those who go to this art form that we call opera. Uh, yep, you yep. see it in the characters that are portrayed and you see it in the creation of it and, and the performers as well. To be a boy soprano, to be perhaps yeah. even 13 or 14 years old and your voice hasn't broken and to really put yourself out there – in the midst of puberty, I think is a very, very difficult thing to do. And we will see mm -hmm. how COC is able to battle against that. Super quick, before we wrap it up, prizes a go-go. What have we started? Everyone got an award this week. Right. It was uh, it was nuts. Uh, we had to like do so, a bunch of editing. I think we even cut out an award or two just because it was so much. But apparently it's the it's the it's the time for it. Um, I'm really excited specifically for a Neuvert's uh, award. She won the composition award um, uh, and uh, not the competition award, which we said in the in the reading. Um, she was honored for the composition of the opera Orlando, mm -hmm. which had its uh, premiere in 2019, uh, kind of before the pandemic, uh, which was um uh, inspired by a Virginia Woolf novel. Yeah. And I remember when they were talking about that, I was really excited. And I think there was, uh, Neuvert has a pretty good track record of getting her operas recorded. So I was excited to like, you know, maybe see it within the next couple of years. And then the pandemic happened and then things got postponed. But um, I'm just always excited to see whatever she has up her sleeve. I also think that um, the general director at the Wiener Staatsoper, Bogdan Rosic, should also get an award for most diacritics. <laughs> Like half his name has a diacritic on it. There were just so many diacritics. I, I just my eyes sort of popped out of my head. My apologies to literally anyone who heard me attempt to, to pronounce his name because I know I got it wrong. You thought Zexischen Staatstheater was difficult to pronounce? <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. I can't take another diacritic. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Two-man show on the OBS this week. I had a blast, Weston. Oh, yeah, me too. It was a good time. 
just you and me, the skeleton Just two crew. bros sitting in the hot tub. Yeah, just talking some sports and opera and just getting ready for the holidays. Good call, bad call is how we wrap up the show every week. Weston Williams, take it away. I had my... Well, I, I, it's kind of weird to say because I, I sit on a panel. Uh, everyone on the panel has participated in a specific opera production in some capacity, whether you they directed as George did or sang in it like everyone else. Um, I am glad to say I made my opera debut last did week. Did you in, really? Yes, in Chicago Opera Theater's um, Becoming Santa Claus, where I was a member of the Children's Bell Choir through a, a contrivance simply too complicated to get into here, but I was child number six. I was in the back playing my bells, a real opera. I've done it. I've peaked. I was going to say, man, like you weren't an elf, right? Because that just, I mean, <laughs> I can suspend my disbelief. Two that. elves in a trench coat, actually. Yeah, <laughs> Good call from me. Of course, uh, we made a big deal about Terrence Blanchard's opera opening the Met season. He will be back in 2023 along with... Uh, uh, the piece he wrote with Michael Christopher, the opera champion, the boxing opera. That was so at excited. Opera Theater of St. Louis as well. Back in 2013, Jim Robinson directing the production. Man, if you are OTSL right now, you got that pipeline through Terrence Blanchard to the mm -hmm. Mets. That must mm -hmm. feel great. Terrence Blanchard just all over the place. So fantastic. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer's Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, you just search for Opera Box Score, Twitter, Instagram, at Opera Box Score. And please help us deepen this bench of listeners. Like and share our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Again, subscribe to the podcast. It's on Stitcher. Just slam that favorite button on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our teammates, Matt Cummings, Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you don't panic about your holiday shopping. <laughs> we're back with an all-new show. Wednesday, January 5. Yes, we're taking two weeks off for the holidays. We're back. January 5, we're going to take a look at the best of opera from 2021. Plus, you're going to get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and probably more failed New Year's resolutions. Couldn't even last a week. Join us. <laughs>